Nahum chapter 1. We only have one verse, but if you look up at the cross-references, we have many cross-references. Again, if you uh, attend Calvary Chapel, you know, you need to have your Bible with you. Somebody give me an amen. amen. And if you're visiting Calvary Chapel and you just heard that for the first time, we have Bibles in the holder in front of you. So we need to have our Bibles. They're our sword. And I like it when you can rather look at me. You can look at the scriptures and just read along with me as we go through them. Uh, we finished uh, Micah. We got through the first chapter of Nahum. But I got to where I wanted to go for this message this morning. And it's in verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows. Why? For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This verse will make more sense when I give you a little bit of the introduction to the book of Nahum, um, or Nahum, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, When God finally convinced his prophet Jonah to actually preach to the people of Nineveh, the whole city responded with repentance, and Nineveh therefore escaped destruction. The people humbled themselves before the one true God, but their humility soon changed to arrogance as Assyria reached its zenith as the most powerful empire in the world. About a century later, the preaching of Jonah, God calls Nahum to proclaim the coming destruction of Nineveh. This time, there will be no escape because their measure of wickedness is full. Unlike Jonah, Nahum does not go to the city but declares his oracle from afar There's no hope of repentance. Nineveh's destruction is decreed, it is described, and it is deserved. There's a scripture that says, to whom much is given, much is required. And Nineveh had been given the privilege of knowing the one true God under Jonah's preaching to this great city uh, that had actually repented. And God had graciously stayed his judgment. However, a hundred years later, Nahum proclaims the downfall of the same city. The Syrians had forgotten the revival and had returned to the habits of violence and idolatry and arrogance. And as a result, now Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, will so destroy the city that no trace of it will remain a prophecy fulfilled in, a pain, in painful detail. Now, the Hebrew word uh, for Nam actually means to comfort or console. It's a shortened version of Nehemiah. That means the comfort of Yahweh. And the destruction of the central city of Assyria is a measure of comfort and consolation to Israel or Judah and all who live in fear of the cruelty of the Assyrians. And therefore, when we read verse 15, now you'll have an understanding. Because people would commit suicide before they would allow a Ninevite or an Assyrian to get a hold of them. Um, 
after the Wednesday night study, I went home. I couldn't believe it. We had just got done talking about Nineveh. And I was watching a PBS program. And I turned it on. And it was talking about ISIS being driven out of Mosul. Well, Mosul is ancient Nineveh. And ISIS is known for their brutality, their carelessness, hiding behind women and children in schools and hospitals and so on and so forth. And um, I couldn't help but think, that's sure interesting. You know, all this time has gone by, and once again, they're talking about ancient Nineveh, only now Mosul. Why is it a source of comfort? Well, the, the Romans 10.15 is actually quoted as a cross-reference here. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings or preach the gospel. And we read, that's Nahum. And it's comforting to Judah simply because they don't have to sweat it anymore because of Nineveh. Nineveh's history. There's no hope. And... Um, Nebuchadnezzar completely leveled them. And as we studied the book of Daniel, we began, remember, with Babylon, and then went to the Medo-Persians, then to the Grecians and our Alexander the Great, and then to the Roman Empire. But before the Babylonians, there was the Assyrians. This here, it was at the zenith of their world power that they fell into pride and arrogance And the only one before them would be Egypt. These are the major world empires that had conquered the known world. There's one more that's coming. The stage is set for the revived Roman Empire, the Ten Toes, that speak of um, the Antichrist control during uh, the Great Tribulation period. So a little, as we look at the background here, Nineveh had experienced a real revival under Jonah, but backslid to their old ways. It took about 100 years of slowly eroding. The book of Nahum is, is divided up in twofold. First of all, the foretelling of the judgment of Nineveh, and number two, to bring comfort to Judah. Again, I know I'm repeating this, but they will no longer be a, a, a threat or have fear of the, the Assyrians and the Ninevites' cruelty and brutality. This morning, I would like to look at revivals um, throughout history and the reason then why their downfall and then certain similarities that they have. And I found a common denominator amongst all of them. And um, even the early church, um, 33 AD, you know, Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. And John wrote the, the book of Revelation in 96 AD. So we're looking at a period of time of, um, oh, 63 years or something like that. And already of Five of the seven churches that John has to address, that Jesus tells them the right to, there's condemnation. You've left your first love. You're backsliding. Um, you've adopted the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which is an establishment of the priesthood over the people. 
And it hadn't even been a hundred years, and John's got to write, and then the Lord tells the, the church of Ephesus, either or. It doesn't give them an alternative. He says, either you repent and get back to your first love, or I'm leaving. I will remove your candlestick. Now, those are pretty firm words. The church had lost its first love. It doesn't say lost. It says they left it, which is interesting. What's your point, Dwight? As I, I, was, as I go through church history and look at, and I'm not going to be able to mention all of them, but I'll mention the ones that um, are well known. Going back to 1714 with uh, George Whitfield. 1714 to 1770. Then it was William uh, Carey, 1761 to 1834. Charles Finney, 1791 to 1875. D.L. Moody. Is he ashamed of his first name? I don't know. D.L. His first name is Dwight. I don't... <laughs> I don't go by D.D. Deauville, you know. I like my name. Anyway, he is, D.L. Moody was 1837 to 1899. Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905. C.T. Studd, 1860-1931. Billy Sunday, 1862-1935. to and it's been documented as such, was the Jesus Movement. Started in 1967. 25 people, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Now 17, 18,000 churches worldwide, Bible colleges all over the world. But as far as what I've, I was there in the beginning, and what I saw 50 years ago, and what I see today are two different things. And Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Well, just this morning, I got out my calculator, and I did a little adding and subtracting, and I found something very interesting. That Whitfield's revival lasted for 56 years, Carey's 73 years, Finney's 84, Moody's 62, Taylor 73, C.T. Studd 71, Billy Sunday 73, the early church, the very first one, 63 years before they started backsliding, and our own and our own Calvary Chapel movement, 50 years. And I don't see what's happened then happening now. And the Bible teaches that in the times that we live, the Lord uses words like overcoming, enduring to the end. Will I find faith when I return? Thessalonians talks about the apostasy or the falling away in the last days. So the question, if we're living in the last days, I hate to be a pessimist here, but I don't see, in America anyway, a revival taking place. I see the church being watered down to such an extent that what started, and unfortunately they didn't start on solid ground, so it's only a matter of time before they are going to be completely backslidden. Now having said that, um, I'm not thinking numbers, because to me the most unbiblical churches in the country today happen to be the largest churches in the country today. This was... um, um, breaking this week, 
Uh, Mega churches become biggest in America to appoint a female lead pastor. Christianity. So here's an article from Christianity Today. It's about Bill Heibel, and he is going to retire next October 2018. I'll read the short article. It says, no one person can replace Willow Creek's community founder, Bill Heibel's. The influential megachurch has named two people, its current executive pastor, Heather Larson, and pastor Steve Carter. Heibel announced on Saturday that the pair will succeed him as lead pastors, plural, when he steps down in 2018. The historic tradition will make Willow Creek one of the largest churches in America with a woman in the lead pastor position, as well as the only major evangelical megachurch with male-female lead pastors who aren't married. When we saw this shaping up, we had to ask ourselves, can our congregation have a lead pastor that's a woman? said Heibel, speaking from Willow Creek Central Campus in southern Barrington, Illinois, one of the seven locations in the Chicago region that draws collectively 25,000 worshipers each weekend. And because this is deeply held value in our church, he said, no problem. No problem having the woman uh, in the pulpit. My first thought was, I wrote a letter two, two years ago, warning about the path that Willow Creek was on when they took on uh, gay worship leaders. Uh, When they have their leadership conferences, the keynote speakers, most of them aren't even Christians. Oh, they're great leaders. They're usually CEOs for major corporations. After all, it's a leadership conference. But my Bible says, you know, give me, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, they, they had court issues. And they said, give me the youngest. He said, shame on your church. You're using worldly principles. Give me the youngest born-again believer in the church. And he'll, he'll, he'll give you God's word on what should be done in this situation. God's word has little priority. The church was founded on a demographic study on simply going door-to-door and asking people, what would you like to see in a church? And so people told them, Students of Peter Drucker, the guru of CEOs in America, both Bill uh, Hybels and Rick Warren, that's their mentor. Are they successful? Well, that all depends. How do you define success? My Bible says, narrow is the gate, and few be that find it. Broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many be that find that. And the trend has been, if you start with this as a foundation, It's only a matter of time that you get to the point where now we're going to have a study this morning. I want to address the issue. Because if you go to Nahum chapter 3 and look at verses 12 and 13, like Rome, they became weak. Oh, they were powerful, but morally they had become weak. And my right above verse 12, the subtitle says, Nineveh's strongholds are weak. And I want you to notice what he mentions. All your strongholds are as fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. 
I wonder how many, when I wrote my letter, of the 82, back then it was 82, I don't know what it is today, uh, I wonder how many of them will follow suit. I wonder, I know that in our own movement, uh, there has been a split, and one of the reasons for the split in the Calvary Chapel movement is the position of women in the church. So as we get into this this morning, J. Vernon McGee commenting on Nahum chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, and remember, he's been with the Lord for quite a while ago, so we're going back 40-some years. So you have to kind of put yourself in that setting. But his comment here is, I believe that the thought here is that men were acting like women, that men were very womanly, or this could mean that women were actually the ones in a position of authority. Frankly, I don't think God is for the women's liberation movement. (gasps) (sighs) Which we have today. I still believe the woman's place is in the home. (gasps) Do you realize how politically incorrect that is what I just said in our society today? Now before I go too much farther, no guilt trip here if you're a woman in the workplace, okay? I understand you might have to. Might be a single mom, might have to take your kids to daycare, and you gotta pay the bills. And you'd rather work with your hands and collect unemployment. I commend you for that. And before I go any further, because of the nature of our study this morning, I want to lay a biblical foundation. What you're going to get this morning is not my feelings, not my opinions, and not what Dwight thinks. We're going to go through the Bible from Genesis all the way through to see what God's word has to say on this particular issue. So to do that, um, before I go any farther, I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beg you, or I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. What Paul is saying here is when it comes to any issue of life, and the case we're talking about this morning is women in the church, in the pulpit. And who is to be conforming who? I do not expect a non-believer to follow this. They can't. But if you're a born-again Christian, then we clearly need to understand that we can't allow the world to be conforming us. It says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed so that we have enough spiritual meat on our bones to tell people what the word of God has to say about any given issue. Good place for an amen. And uh, that's our calling. And we're to do it with boldness to speak even as an oracle of God. And forget people's person's personal opinions, or the trends that come and go, because they will come and they will go. Next place I'd like you to turn is 1 John chapter 2, towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, 
but it's of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The society that we live in, in today, as far as, in this case, the feminist movement, and where it came, oh, I can go back. I can remember the day mom went to work. I was 16, and, and I was used to coming home all the time, and, and um, she really didn't need to, but she did. For some reason, I got mad. I didn't know why I was mad. I was just mad. Mom wasn't home. And she was always there to greet us at the door. And again, be careful here. Um, None of this is reality and not a guilt trip. Are you with me so far? Okay, so um, what this verse is telling us is that as far as this world is concerned, it has its own God. He's the God of this world. We tried to do some research under Stalin and communism, and um, I, I don't have the documentation. Mary and I were talking through, and my wife Judy and I were talking it through. And we were, we're pretty sure we heard somewhere that, that part of the manifesto of communism is to destroy the family unit. And to do so, part of that would be getting the woman out of the home, which is the anchor and the rock to any home. So I can't lay that out there dogmatically this morning, but I'm pretty sure of that. Something else I want you to hear before I go any farther. The Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has done more to liberate women than anything else in the world. Saudi Arabia just allowed women for the first time to drive a car just this last month. And... um, um, Women in a lot of societies were simply pieces of property that could be bought and sold. And uh, they had the stature of, of a servant in many societies. The United States of America was an exception to that, where there was uh, dignity um, given. So I want to go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis. And um, boy... Gals that are meeting on Sunday for the women's luncheon, this should be a cornerstone. It already is because I know the gals that are up there teaching, and I know um, that teaching women is, is perfectly biblical and acceptable. In Genesis 3, we have uh, a curse being given to the woman in verse 16. Harmony, tranquility existed between Adam and Eve before the fall. But when Eve, and this is important because Peter's going to make a reference to the fall in First Peter a little bit later in our Bible study this morning. But as a result of Eve being deceived by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it was something good to look at. It was going to make her wise. And has God said, challenging God's word, He never changes his tactics. They're always the same. But as a result, the Lord said, in the day you eat of this, you'll die. Well, um, physical death didn't happen at that place. But a bond was broken. As you look at verse 16, the curse to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, we're told that we're no longer under the curse in the New Testament, right? Amen? 
But ladies, let me ask you a question. Those of you who had babies, did it hurt? (laughs) I'll take that as a yes. Okay, so what does that mean? That means the curse is still in effect. Evidently before the curse, it would have been painless in having children. But then it goes on to say, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What I want to tell you here is foundational in understanding, ladies, who you are and what part of this curse is. This is not an accurate translation of what is being said here. And um, I'm just going to read something that uh, gives what the Hebrew is saying in the verse, um, your desire shall be towards your husband. And I'm quoting now with a question How is a woman's desire for her husband a curse? The answer, as God pronounced judgment on Eve for her part of the transgression in Eden, he says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This verse causes some puzzlement. It would seem that a woman desiring her husband would be a good thing and not a curse. The Hebrew phrase in question does not include a verb and is literally translated toward your husband, your desire. Since the judgment is predicted, the future tense verb will be is added for clarification. Your desire will be for your husband. The most basic and straightforward understanding of this verse is that women and man would now have an ongoing conflict In contrast to the ideal condition in the Garden of Eden and the harmony between Adam and Eve, their relationship from that point on would include a power struggle. Um, the, The NLT translation makes more sense, and this is the correct meaning of verse 16. It should read this. Your, you will desire to control your husband And then we have the word but in verse 16. um, And it says, or he, and he shall rule over you. Now it makes sense when you put the two together. But gals, you need to understand. It still hurts to have babies. And whether you acknowledge it or not, there is a part of you that wants to be in control. And it is a part of the curse. And um, as we develop this, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11. I'll pick it up in verse 3. Paul saying, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then it goes on, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her her head, which would be her husband. For that is one and the same as her head if it were shown. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for her as a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought to not cover his head since he is in the image of the glory of God, but woman is in the glory of man. Notice verse 8. 
For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Let's just stop here. Sometimes we think God made Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth. No, he didn't. He made Adam out of the dust of the earth. And then he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he took out one of Adam's ribs, and he made woman. And that's what it means, for man is not from woman, but woman is from man. This whole transgender thing that's going on today is off the charts. What they're teaching our kids as early as kindergarten is causing them such confusion. They don't have a biblical uh, foundation zone that is very, very clear. This is not a gray area. This is as black and as white as it can get. And it addresses the issue that men are men and women are women. Amen? Amen? Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now, gals, if you don't like that, I'm just reading my Bible, okay? For this reason, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? Answer, I don't know. I can say that from time to time. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman, nor woman independent from the man and the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man also was through the woman. We were born by my mother. She was a woman. But all things are from God. All right. Yet, having just read that, I want to quote Galatians 3, verse 23, so that we find a balance in this Bible study this morning. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Well, then what's up with this order hierarchy in 1 Corinthians 11? Anybody in the military should understand it, that uh, not everybody is a general. Not everybody is a three-star, two-star, one-star, major, colonel, colonel, sergeant, private, Um, God loves the general just as much as he loves the private. Amen? Amen. But what if there was no, what if you didn't have that structure? What would you have? Chaos. You would have order. The first thing that you ask the guys, uh, Lennon's back, Lennon Mall's back right now, um, but the first thing that he told his dad is when they got there, what's it like, son? Dad, they're breaking us. They're breaking us to learn how to say, yes, sir, no, sir, and just that way. And you learn your place as you make your way through the ranks so that when you're commanded to do something by your sergeant, that that order is followed through. And anybody who's been in the service understands exactly what I'm talking about. There has to be order. You can't put two sinners together and expect there to be peace. So what has God done? He's created an order. So all things can be done decently in order. Now this isn't in my notes, I'm gonna throw it in. Husbands, you need to talk to your wives. There was times that God said to Abraham, listen to your wife. Listen to what she has to say. She wanted to get rid of Ishmael. And that was not what Abraham wanted. 
And the Lord says, listen up, do what she says. And there was a reason for that because it's going to become a type when you get to the New Testament where he uses Hagar and Ishmael and uh, Sarah and Abraham as, a, as an example of works versus grace, the promise versus the law. And it goes back. So what do you do, husbands and wives, when you don't see eye to eye? You sit down and talk. Amen? All right, now you can't come to a consensus. Now what? Well, wives, you need to follow through with what your husband is saying. But what if he's wrong? I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. I've said this before, but this, this morning's study is so politically incorrect um, that uh, it's about as politically incorrect as you can get. But remember, Romans 4, Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is a way of death. There's a way that man looks at the world in which we live. Oh, it seems right, it seems fair, so on and so forth. But that's the ways of men and not the ways of this book. So it's man's ways versus the word of God. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Man's ways versus God's ways. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work, but also for every doctrine. And in this case, how it relates to women being in the pulpit. So my question is, and you don't say it out loud, but in your heart, do you really believe that this book in your lap is an errant, that all scripture is inspired from Genesis to the book of Revelation. You have to decide that. And when it gets into these dicey, touchy um, messages like we're having this morning, you have to go back to what's the authority. My opinion, the latest social trends, or God's word. This has to be a part of our Bible study this morning because of the nature of the instruction that is being given to us. Either this book is inerrant, I can prove it to you. When people uh, argue with me about it, well, some of it is and some of it isn't. I'm going to get Bob up here one of these Sundays. He's going to finish up on his red letter um, edition and people getting away from Scripture. And um, he will um, add to what I'm saying this morning. But many people pick and choose. Take what you like, throw away the rest. Call them red-letter Christians. So only the words that Jesus said um, can be trusted. Can't trust Paul in Romans chapter 1 because he says sexually immoral people aren't going to go to heaven. And um, so obviously a loving God wouldn't do that, so that can't be a part of the Bible. And gang, this is what you're going to have to wrestle with. What is your foundation? Is it the solid rock of God's word? Is that the final authority, end of discussion, end of issue? Well, you need to know that you are in a minority, just like the Bible said. And again, I'll quote, in the last days there will be the falling away. From what? Sound scripture. 
found sound doctrine. And um, having said that, 2 Timothy 4, verses uh, 1 through 5. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at, at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. That doesn't sound very loving. With all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they will have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful of all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Well, as it relates to um, uh, this morning and what we're, we're talking about here in First Timothy 2, verse 12. So now we're back at First Timothy. That's where I wanted to go. First Timothy 2, verse 12 and 13. Now we're getting back to the issue of women in the pulpit. What does God's word have to say about it? Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now back to the garden. For Adam was born first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. He went into the sin with his eyes wide open. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childhood if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So in these verses here, in 1 Timothy 4, um, is that what I want? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5? No, but I'll just read verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the doctrine of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself, rather, to godliness. Um, In other words, you hear what he's saying, stay with doctrine that is solid. And, you know, the question, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 at this point. We can't do a study without going to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. These scriptures were read at Nate and Jessica's wedding on Friday. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore... Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in some things. Is that what it says? No. Oh, it can't mean everything. Well, that's what it says. Okay, husbands, your job. Husbands, love your wives. Guys, it's easy for your wives to submit when they know that they're unconditionally loved. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, 
that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it said, be holy and without blemish. And so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. But he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Now, you may not be sitting here, but there's a whole lot of people watching live stream. And they may have thrown something at, at, the, at the computer by now. I don't know. <laughs> and they're saying, what? Me? Submit to him? What if he's wrong? And you know he's wrong. And he's just playing this as a trump card because uh, I've been around a long time and I've heard it. Guys take advantage of the scripture and they use it as a club instead of explaining it to him and talking it through and trying to come to, to a consensus. What if he is wrong? Well, okay, let's turn to First Peter chapter 3. Again, I don't want to muddy the waters or get in the way of what God's word has to say on this particular issue. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their lives. I could just go through the list of godly women who prayed for their unsaved husbands for many, many years. And they faithfully hung in there and just prayed for them. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, they're watching you. They're watching how you interact with your husband and with your wife. Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning, the raging of hair or wearing of gold or putting on a fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you are if you do good and not afraid with any terror. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. And finally, All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted and be courteous. Go back to verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham. And she obeyed him at a time when he was dead wrong. God never called them to Egypt, but he went there. And as they were getting closer, the word was getting out that Pharaoh liked beautiful women. And the Bible says about Sarah that she was very beautiful. And so Abraham's getting a little nervous. He's thinking, Pharaoh's going to take one look at Sarah, and he's going to want her. So he goes to Sarah, and he says, Sarah, tell you what, honey, how would you like to be my sister for a while? And, uh, well, there's a man's man for you, sticking up for his wife. Go ahead and lie. Flat out lie. And what did she do? She went along with it. She didn't get in. You're a man of God. And you're telling me to lie? She didn't go there. She submitted to herself. 
And so those of you wrestling with, but he's wrong, well, the example from Scripture, Abraham was wrong. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. So what do you do? Well, I think Sarah went into prayer mode. If Abraham is my head and God is his head, I'm going to obey him, but I'm going to do some talking to his head. So she goes over his head. She does an end around. And what happened is the Pharaoh had a dream. And in the dream, well, one day he saw Abraham and Sarah sporting. I'm not going to add to that. You can figure it out by yourself. (laughs) And um, then the Lord gets involved and uh, speaks to Pharaoh. He says, you lay one hand on that woman and your history. And he gets all upset at Abraham, takes it on Abraham. Abraham, why did you tell me she was your sister? She's not your sister, that's your wife. And your God almost took me out. But girls, this is what I want you to see. One or two things are gonna happen when you're at an impasse. After you've done the best you could to talk it out, to work it out, but you still can't come to an agreement. Ladies, this is your place to back down. If you have to go over his head, yes, he might be wrong. But even if he is wrong, what we have here in verse 7 is Sarah is the example of going over his head. God will deal with him. I guarantee you God will deal with him if he's wrong. The judgment of God starts with the household of God. And so he took care of, he, he took care of that particular issue. Um, so as we begin to tie this together this morning, turn to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31 and verses 10 is, Scripture is about a virtuous woman. Friday, Nate and Jessica were married, got to meet his dad, we got connected a little bit, and um, I said, who would have thought on October 20th that it's going to be 75 degrees, one of the most beautiful days of the year? And he said, I tried to talk to kids out of it. They wouldn't listen. They said, the Lord's going to take care of it. And it was such a beautiful wedding. And um, the colors were turning. It was at Hartman's Creek. And um, they had extra things added into their service. They read Ephesians 5. And... Um, Then they washed each other's feet as a sign of humility between both of them. He washed her feet, and she washed his feet. And um, they did that because Jesus said, if you want to be a servant, then I'm going to give you a demonstration. And Jesus got down and washed the disciples' feet. Of course, Peter would have nothing to do with it. You're not going to wash my feet, Lord. I'm Peter. You're not going to... You're the Lord. You can't do this for me. He says, all right, Peter, then I guess you don't have anything to do with me. Lord, give me a shower. <laughs> so if that's, if that's what it is, he says, no, Peter. I'm just giving you an example. Be humble. And uh, think before you speak, Pete. And as a result, it was just a beautiful thing to watch. I got it on video on my camera. So if you want to see it sometime, let me know. And um, Rick Craig cleans up pretty good. He was one of the guys in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wedding party. And I had to look twice. I said, that's Rick Craig. 
Now he's really embarrassed because I'm, I'm looking at him right now. He's just shaking his head. Dwight, don't go there. <laughs> but it was a beautiful wedding, and Nate got a Proverbs 31 wife. Growing up being homeschooled, grew up Calvary Chapel in Madison. Jeff and Candy were there. All their friends were there. And it was a beautiful, beautiful event as they stood before their maker. And they said, yes, I will love my wife as Jesus loved the church, or I'll give it my best shot. And yes, I will submit myself to my husband as unto the Lord. And then they demonstrated it. Nate got a Proverbs 31 wife. Well, what's the Proverbs 31 wife? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Beginning in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far more than rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, for she will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it, From her prophet, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hand to the the distaff and her hand holds a spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hand to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come, for she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, And let her own works praise her in the congregation. As we get into the book of Nahum, it only took 100 years where there was the largest successful evangelical movement where 100% of the people got saved. And it only took 100 years for them to slowly go back to their own ways. And as I said earlier, this is a pattern that we see throughout history. Uh, Men and women were no longer the spiritual leaders. I like to think of uh, the gals of a very fine, delicate, beautiful vase. Very fragile, but very, very beautiful. I like to think of men as root beer mugs. (laughs) And the difference between the two, we are different. 
And, um, and, and closing here, I just want to challenge the men. Men, lead. I believe that the heart of a real woman wants her husband to lead. Ladies, love your husbands. Be their helpmate. Um, not their sparring mate. And remember, when it gets to women in ministry, that there were women like Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha. They loved and followed Jesus. But every one of the disciples was a male. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. From Genesis to Revelation. And if you're having a problem with the morning's message, take it to the Bible and don't send me your emails. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Let's stand up and we'll pray. Lord, thank you that your word is inerrant, that there isn't an area or issue of life that it doesn't address. I thank you that it's not up for discussion when it comes to doctrine. And uh, we're grateful for that, Lord. And as we train our children, let us start in Genesis and let the children know that there's a part of them that uh, is part of a curse that's it's a result of the fall that can't be changed until you give us our new bodies, and that's why you tell us, Lord, to die daily to ourself so that we can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. I, I pray that you'd plant it in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.